I see you've got your cat in the uh, the background there. Is that your cat? It is, yes, Lily. But Lily is an indoor cat. She's self-centered. She's strategic. She's egotistical. She's a prima donna. And for all these reasons, she's delightful. That sounds like just about every other cat I've, I've met in my life. You're saying my cat is not special? Welcome back, listeners, for Season 3 of The Playbook, a podcast by LGO at MIT, where we interview some of the brightest minds at MIT and beyond. For our first episode of the season, we have Professor Arnold Barnett, the George Eastman Professor of Management Science and Statistics at MIT, a pillar of the Sloan community, and a dear friend to the LGO class of 22. Fasten your seatbelts and remain calm as we discuss some of the most pressing issues the world is facing, including the COVID-19 pandemic and the meaning of life, luck, and legacy. Season three of The Playbook starts now. Hi, Professor Barnett. Welcome to the show. Thanks for, uh, for joining. Sure. A pleasure. You're looking very well. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you again or at least a fraction of you that I see now. Well, you know, I, I was reading that uh, you've been having a very busy year with regard to COVID, right? You've been all over the media. Is, is that a pretty typical year for you, or, or is this uh, a statistical anomaly, as you would say? Well, COVID itself is an extraordinary anomaly. Uh, never before in my life has there been anything so terrible. You know, we just passed the milestone of 200,000 deaths. And this is extraordinary. It's nowhere near the end in sight. You know, we're having something like 1,000 deaths a day, and it's stabilized at that level for at least a month or so. So if you just do the math, at that rate, we have about three and a half months till the end of the year. That would be another 100,000. And there's a fear that there will be a second wave in the fall, which is what happened in the calamitous pandemic of 1918, the second wave actually took many more lives than the first. So it's an extraordinary and terrible circumstance. So in answer to your question, is it an unusual year for me? Yes, it's an unusual year. Uh, I've, I have worked on aviation safety for a long time, and I did get involved in a question involving aviation safety and COVID. We would love to hear more about yeah, COVID and the airline industry, especially for a lot of us anxious folks that want to get back to traveling. Would you advise that at this time? Well, let's put it this way. I think traveling by air is about as safe as the same amount of time on the ground. In other words, it's not, never mind what the airlines say that it's so much safer. It's not much, it's not much safer. It's about equal in safety. And because of COVID risk, the usually huge advantage in safety of traveling by plane rather than car has, in my judgment, evaporated. That if you're going a thousand miles, the statistic, statistical risk, including COVID and a plane crash, versus the risks in your car, they're about the same. And it used to be that it was, you know, four, five, six times more dangerous in terms of mortality risk alone driving. But that's no longer true. So it is worse. What was interesting in this situation, though, is very rarely, and you know, I've been at this business quite some time, do you have a circumstance where U.S. airlines differ overtly on a question of safety? They basically have said, you know, we, we never compete on safety. We work all together. And that's largely been true. And they have a fabulous overall record in avoiding crashes. But what happened here is you had United Airlines very aggressively took the position it was not going to keep middle seats empty. It said, look, to have social distancing, you have to have six feet separation. And even if you keep the middle seat empty, there are lots of other seats within six feet of you. So keeping the middle seat empty is, quote unquote, a PR strategy and not a safety strategy. And yet, when American Airlines announced that it too was going to fill the middle seats when demand justified it, the Centers for Disease Control said it was, quote, unquote, obviously disappointed. And Dr. Fauci, who many of us respect enormously, said he was obviously disappointed. I was interested in the fact that both parties used the word obviously. 
meaning as far as they were concerned, it wasn't even close. So what I tried to do is think, just as we did in our little course together, I said, well, can we work out probabilities? What is the risk of coming down with COVID in a flight which is full and you're just an uninfected person on the flight? And what is the risk assuming middle seats are kept empty so only two-thirds of the seats are full and you're sitting either with someone you know, let's say a spouse, for example, or that seat is empty? And so I did some calculations and I posted the preprint, which is what it was, at one of these websites that sp sprung up, Med, uh, MedRx. It's a general website for papers about medical issues. But now with COVID, it's become sort of a bulletin board where people put things up as soon as they have them, in effect. And I didn't know whether or not there would be any attention from, let's say, the press. I did not seek any such attention, but there was some. And I might add I wasn't distraught at this attention, but the, there was a good deal of attention to it. And I'm still putting finishing touches on the paper because some of the critical questions are very hard to answer. What kind of feedback or what kind of comments were you getting on your assertions in that, in that research? Well, the media actually gave a very gentle treatment of it. They, uh, they basically presented the results, often in correct ways, although in some ways a little more sensationalistic than I had put it in the paper, but not incorrectly so. You know, I did estimate that, roughly speaking, the risks of coming down with something were almost twice as high if the plane is full than if the middle seat is empty. And, you know, that answer arises from simple common sense. I mean, let's suppose you're talking about, let's say, a 737 or an Airbus 320, three across seating in coach, ABC, ILDEF. Well, look, if you're in one of those seats, if the, if the row is full, there are five other people. If, if it's middle seat empty, there are three others beside you, let's say, because there are four out of six when you think of the two empty seats. And if it's a first approximation, you will see every passenger on the plane has a certain probability of giving you COVID if the person's nearby. Well, if you have five nearby instead of three, that immediately gives you a ratio of five to three, which is 1.7. And the same ratio would apply for the people in the row ahead of you, let's say. There are five of them instead of three. So that's a baseline estimate. But when I took into account the specifics of the distances between you and these other people, then instead of five-thirds, I got something like 1.8 or so. In other words, taking into account the specifics slightly increased the relative risk factor, but not very much over the, the most naive estimate of it. So when people say it doesn't matter when the middle seat is empty, you know, it's very puzzling. See, what United did was engaged in a kind of sophistry in that they said, you know, if there are other people within, middle, within six feet of you, a strategy that reduces that number of people, you know, is just a PR strategy. But if there are only eight people within six feet of me rather than 12, that alone implies a reduction, you would think. And so... So I noticed that, and I noticed, of course, people like Dr. Fauci clearly didn't go along with it. So I did a bit of analysis. The airlines were very unhappy with it and are very unhappy with it. And the, what I gather they have, I won't mention the name, they've hired an organization, lots of people in the organization, in effect, to come up with a rebuttal. Okay? These people have accepted money from the airlines to investigate this issue. And they, they can, you know, I, I hope they will come up with an objective analysis. I assume it won't be terribly different from what I came up with. I think it'd be very hard for them to make an objective analysis, though, right? Because when you describe the risk going down by having four to six, if I'm an airline, I'm thinking two less seats, that's, you know, a third less profit, right? Well, they certainly think that. But you see, even here... At this time, I think that analysis doesn't apply for several reasons. One of them is, as of now, the salaries of all their employees are being paid for by the government under the CARES Act. And it is likely that if there is another stimulus bill in the coming days, that will be extended till March of next year. So in other words, they are not allowed to lay off the flight attendants or the baggage handlers or the pilots or anyone else. 
So in other words, the labor cost is fixed or actually zero for them at the moment because the government is paying the salaries. Then what are the other costs of, of you know, operating planes? Or more specifically, here's what I'm saying. And I didn't say that clearly. Suppose an airline is following middle seat empty and it notices that the plane is almost two thirds full. Well, one option is to put on a second section of the flight to take care of the overflow. Well, what's the incremental cost of that? You, you, it, there's zero incremental labor costs because you've got to pay any, everyone anyway, and the government is doing the paying. Fuel it is near an all-time low, the price of fuel. They have enormous number of planes sitting idle on the ground. So getting a plane, in other words, to serve as the second section does not mean taking a plane out of service elsewhere. So the marginal cost, in other words, of keeping the middle seat empty and following the algorithm that when something is near two thirds full, put on an, an extra section of that flight uh, is very low. And at the same time, because people are so nervous about flying, anything that basically makes them more comfortable can increase your revenue. You know, I've noticed, uh, uh, again, uh, this is anecdotal, but I, if you wanted to fly, let's say from Boston to Washington DC to Reagan National Airport, one airline that's flying keeps the middle seats empty. The other airline does not. And when I go to look at, just for curiosity, what the prices are, the airline with the middle seats empty seems to be charging more than the airline that's filling them. In other words, there may be a market reaction to the idea that when Dr. Fauci says he's very disappointed in, in a particular airline, that maybe that's an airline one would stay away from. So in other words, it could be they are losing revenue and they are avoiding an extra cost, which is minimal. So they might be worse off. And one more thing, even an airline like United is only operating on average 47% full. So most of the time, in effect, they are keeping the middle seat empty, even if it isn't the policy. So why on, are they insisting on this ideology, which really only comes into play very rarely? Why not in the rare circumstances it comes up, avoid it? Yeah, that's a really interesting insight you shared there, um, talking about the customer responsiveness to these policies. Um, do you think that the responsiveness to, to the consumer base of that policy, whether to fill the middle seat or not, is, is really driving the bottom line for a lot of these uh, airlines right now? Well, the bottom line is not good for any of the airlines right now. Because even with the salaries being paid, they wind up, wind, wind up losing money from what they say. But I'll tell you, if you go to a website like Travelocity, you want a, a comparison shop, they now tell you what precautions against COVID the airline is taking, and in particular, how many. So if you go, let's say, to American Airlines, they will say American is taking three precautions. If you then go, let's say, to JetBlue, it'll say JetBlue is taking five precautions, including middle seat empty. So the customer is getting information about these differences, and presumably customers requested it. That's why it's part of the standard information about flights on these websites. And while some passengers, of course, will go to the lower fare, you see, the problem is an airline like American has to offer a lower fare because otherwise, people might not want to take it. All factors being equal, they would probably rather be on an airline that seems to be going further in the interest of safety than another one. And you know, the CEO of Delta Airlines, Bastion, said when he was asked, why are you keeping middle seat empty? He said, at Delta, we put safety before profits. Now notice that response. United is saying it's a PR strategy. And then you have a very pointed response from the CEO of Delta. I've never seen any such animosity before. So anyway, that's what I tried to do. And I, by the way, in the analysis, and I'm by no means perfect, I used exactly the kinds of principles we discussed in our little course. You know, working out probabilities, conditional probabilities, you know, thinking of events and are they mutually exclusive? Can I add the probabilities? If they're not, can I argue that the failure of mutual exclusivity is a second order effect? So I find the kinds of concepts that we were using to be very helpful here. And 
and lots of other things I've done. Have you been able to effectively package and deliver that message to, you know, the top brass at these airlines or to government officials? And what's the reaction? Well, the answer is the airlines certainly know about it. I got calls from Boeing. And yes, they know it. That's how I know the COOs, the chief operations officers, are very angry. And they said, we got to do a study to try to rebut this. But yes, oh, they certainly know about it. I think. And as far as the legislators, well, there was one, I think Senator Merkley of Oregon had said he was going to introduce legislation to require the airlines to keep middle seats open. And I don't know whether he has any plans of doing so at the moment. Of course, no legislation is being passed of any kind. But if there is to be a new stimulus bill and there is money for the airlines, there may be some stipulations in it. I don't think it would be as extreme as saying you must keep middle seats open indefinitely. But uh, yeah, I do think that when when something is cited, and I've been fortunate, it's been cited three times in the Wall Street Journal, I think you can assume that people have seen it. It was even cited in the New York Times accurately, and not everything these days in the New York Times is accurate. Yeah, it makes me wonder, you know, when people cite your work, uh, I, I I hate that, you know, the way the world is now, everything seems to be politicized, right? Is is that something you worry about? People misconstruing and mischaracterizing your conclusions and using them for political reasons? No. No, I don't. I'm not saying it isn't a worry. I am saying I don't worry about it. I think what I can try to do is tell the truth. That's the whole point. You know, when some, when you have a tenured position at a university, in theory, you have a lot of protection. I don't suffer that if people are unhappy with me, you know, I could lose my job. I mean, not for something like that. I guess, you know, axe murderers themselves can, you know, evoke dismay among their colleagues. But no, I, I wrote it out. I put it up there. I made my assumptions clear for all to see. And people can take it as they will. Am I worried about distortions? I'll tell you, this is my own view. And some people will be enraged if I said that I say this. Uh, I don't think the media has mischaracterized what I've said. I think the accounts have been accurate and thoughtful. And the, the talk about media hysteria is itself sort of a reflex action to say, pay no attention to him. But no, but I, I'm, I'm in a pretty lucky position. I'm lucky to be teaching, including groups like the LGOs. And I'm lucky to be able to do research without having to worry that there are reprisals if people dislike my conclusions. You know, it's it's funny you use the word lucky, right? Um, I, I know there's a lot of really bright professors at MIT and at other places that they spend their whole careers doing their research and, and teaching their students. And a lot of them don't get the exposure that you do. Right. And I know you've been featured in top professor in the country lists and you've been cited a million times by various publications. I've seen that Facebook page, the iHeart Arnie Barnett page that some students started. Um, it, it makes me wonder, what do you think it is about you that makes you such a powerful presence publicly um, and personally to your students and everybody you work with? And you don't have to be modest. I, I want to hear the answer. No, I don't want to answer that question. I just want to say, could you repeat it? Because I'd love, I'd love listening to it. Well, you're a very influential man and very likable too. I'd love to try to understand what the secret sauce is. Well, I don't know what the what the secret the secret sauce is. I think there is a lot of an element of luck, very much an element of luck in my life and everyone else. Part of the reason I guess I'm fascinated by probability is that I understand that a lot of things happen by chance. Let me give you an example. I was a graduate student. I got my degree in the MIT math department. And my thesis advisor, Danny Kleitman, was an absolutely brilliant man, a brilliant mathematician, a combinatoricist who worked out counting arguments in the most obscure situations. And I remember I didn't know what I was going to write my thesis about. So I went into his office one day. His office was mayhem all kinds of things scattered in a random fashion around the room. And I actually found, hanging off the edge of the desk, a copy of a journal called Transportation Science. 
and I opened it up, and there was an article about erratic behavior, random, how random fluctuations can screw up a transit system. So, for example, I don't know whether you've ever, Hunter, waited for a bus and waited and waited, and when it finally came, it was accompanied by a caravan of six others. I have. Actually, there are reasons that can happen, because even if the buses leave the originating stop on schedule, let's say a bus starts getting behind schedule because there are more people than expected at the stops, people are a little slower getting on, it has bad luck at the traffic lights, so it starts to get behind schedule. But because it's behind schedule, there are going to be more people at the later stops, and thus it's going to get further behind schedule because it's making more stops you know, more people getting on, more people getting off. What about the bus behind it? Well, it winds up having fewer people waiting because people who normally would have gotten that bus wound up getting on the earlier bus that was late. So it starts getting ahead of schedule. And this process can continue until the second bus catches up with the first. And more than two buses can play. So I thought it was a very interesting paper. And I thought about various ways of investigating that whole issue of randomness in transportation systems, but it really was a matter of luck that I found that I wasn't planning to do a thesis on transportation, but it just seemed interesting and I just found it because of chance. More importantly, though, I had luck in a different way. My thesis advisor, I said, was brilliant. And you know, look, I, I'm not a brilliant mathematician. I mean, I'm, I certainly can hold my own, but there's a, I know I'm not a great mathematician. So sometimes I'd go in to see him, after, you know, once a week I'd meet him, and he'd say at the beginning of the class, say, oh, you know, I had a thought, and he'd say something casual. Well, his casual thought was my week's cogitation. You know, anyway, in that, in a situation like that, a person in his position really could have crushed the ego of a student, but he was a very generous person. You know, he would talk about how excited he was about my work, and I'm sure in some circumstances he was exaggerating it. But I was lucky. Basically, he, he didn't do something that would reduce my self-worth. And believe me, in graduate school, in these doctoral programs, people have all kinds of experiences that affect the rest of their lives. So I've been lucky in, in quite, a, quite a number of ways. You know, so, so I believe in chance. And I also know there were lots of other people like me who just were not lucky at these junctures and their whole lives turned out differently only because of chance and nothing else. I'll tell you another thing, though. When I was in the first grade, I remember toward the end of the first grade, we moved to a different room to take an IQ test. And I was fascinated. The room that I normally had was very austere. And here was a room. There were flowers and colors and things. So I was so interested in the room, I didn't pay much attention to the test. What does a first grader know? So I got a score like something like 74, you know, where 100 is the normal IQ and 74, I guess, is not so great. So they put me in the second grade in a class for people who didn't have that much potential. And they didn't really make a point of trying to tell us how to read. They would, we would do sewing, I remember, in and out, in and out. And my mother went up to the school one day and said, what's, what's going on with this? Can't you give him a chance to read? So in the third grade, I was put in another class, and I guess I learned to read. But that's luck also. I was lucky that my mother involved herself and said, this makes no sense. She herself was not that educated. She never went to college or anything. But she had a feeling that they were setting me back. And she went in, and there was a response. And if this hadn't happened... My whole trajectory would have been different. I would have been in the third grade, for example, in another class where maybe they teach us the first half of the alphabet and think the second half will be too demanding of us. And then after a while, you can wind up so far behind, there's no way out. And I'm sure that happens to a lot of people these days. So I guess a, a lot of the answer to your question, Connor, and I mean it sincerely, is I'm a lucky guy. Do you think there are ways that people can improve their chances of being lucky like you were? Well, that's interesting. You know, I gave a talk once. I wanted to see my parents in Florida, and I was invited to give a talk to some group in Fort Lauderdale. And I said that, as I say to you, although I said it in different ways then, 
I said, you know, I'm lucky. And someone said, well, you know, you make your own luck. And I guess it's true that it's a combination of luck and taking advantage of luck. Although I don't know exactly what the proportions are. You know, you may remember in class we did, did we, we did Miller's Dilemma, right? The game with three aces and an eight. This was the one based off of a, a prior student in your class, right? That's right. Steve Miller. Steve Miller. The reason I mentioned Steve Miller is that he became the head of the Poker Players Alliance, which is, a, to some extent, a lobbying group that's arguing that online poker for money should be allowed. And I gather the question of whether it was permissible at the federal level is based on the question, is poker a game of skill or is poker a game of luck? And what do you think it is? Well, the answer is it's a little of both, right? I mean, if you get four aces, even if you're not the most skillful player, you're probably going to win that round. Whereas even a skillful player in the short run, of course, will have reverses. But then I guess if you look in the long run, the skill, more skillful player will wind up doing better. Even though in individual instances, luck will push him down or push him up, etc. So yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question. In other words, there is such a thing as skill as well as luck, and I'm not exactly sure what the what the fractions are. I think when, when luck does not go in your favor, we call that a, uh, a statistical bummer. Is that right? Well, I think some people use even stronger terms than that. I don't doubt that. No, I think that, of course, uh, luck can go. Look, I hope everything is okay by the time you people finish up in 2022. But for people who finished up in 2020 or finishing up in next June, you could say there is the element of bad luck to be going into the world in the middle of a pandemic. You know, I teach a course or a part of a course called the aviation industry or the airline industry. I just give the lectures on safety and security. But a lot of people, you know, who go through that course, which is primarily offered through the aero and astro department, uh, want to go into the aviation industry. At the moment, it's impossible. So, yeah, there is clearly such a thing as luck about it. And, and some uh, look at this, in this very pandemic. Some people are hurt so much more than I've been or than I think we've been. So, yeah, there certainly is an element of chance. And some of it is unavoidable. But some of it, as you say, taking chances, knowing when to, you know, what do they say in poker? Know when to hold them, know when to fold them. And know when to walk away and when to run. Yes, let's sing. There is a song, know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Don't count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time for counting when the evening's done. I forget, there, there is a, you can Google it. There is such a song. Oh, I'm, I'm familiar with the song. It's a good song. It's a good song. It is a good song. I feel like that could be your, your walkout song or something if you were presenting, right? being a statistics guy. You could say that. But that's a that's a person who is saying you have to be able to use statistics or use probabilities and understand when the odds are in your favor and also what are the consequences one way or the other. You know, I, I in the class I don't know we did do it. Yes, we did do it in the class because well, I lost $40 in your class, you know. I think I think those two students are actually still looking for you. They're still looking for that 20 bucks. No, one of them suggested that I give a donation to an organization, and I have. And they're supposed to contact that student and say that, but I'll check with her. But there is the other student, yes, and uh, I don't want to say I'm glad there's a pandemic because it's harder for the person to get the $20. But anyway, there, you know, for a given student, if you want to bet the dollar, there's only a 7 in 100 chance that you're going to win. Of course, this time, the, the, the 7 and 100 came through. But on the other hand, if you win, the payoff is enormous, you know, relative to the amount you bet. And in the long run, that would be a great strategy. So distinguishing the short run and the long run in that case, that you could say is understanding chance and taking the description of uncertainty and using it, you know, for one's gain. I can I can tell from from hearing from you in more more detail than we got in your class. You know, you're a, you're a, a serial optimist. It sounds like. Oh no! Oh no! 
Oh, no. Why not? Well, to acknowledge that I've been very lucky doesn't mean that I'm an optimist. It depends on what you mean by optimism. But no, I wouldn't say in general I'm, I'm an optimist. Well, when I when I think back to your story, maybe optimist isn't the right word, but but your story about when you were in grade school, you know, and got put in the lower class, I think a lot of people would look back on that like an injustice, you know what I mean, and feel bad about it. But but you were able to spin that in a very positive light, which I, I find to be an admirable quality. Well, because it worked out well. In in other words, first of all, I, look, I was the one that screwed up the the IQ test. Of course, you could argue that making these big decisions for children based upon what they circle with crayons and something they have no idea what the importance is and some of them will pay no attention to it some of them more you can say that itself is a terrible injustice and my guess is in the school system now things like that happen all the time all the time that people wind up not doing well on standardized tests so they are then classified in certain ways and these classifications you know they live down to expectations so i wouldn't say in general i'm an optimist i mean when i read the news now i don't feel very optimistic but yeah i think i i don't i don't think i'm an optimist i think in that case the luck i had was that my mother sensed this is not right and went up and they were responsive to a parent so you could say yeah there were elements of luck that's true that were there. So I don't deny that that some people have good luck and have lovely lives. But I also don't deny that because of bad luck, lots of people have much less than they should really have in terms of just happiness. Now, where would you even start? You know, what what would be your your focus on trying to fix some of those some bad outcomes that don't deserve or that are not deserved by those people? Well, don't forget, I'm not a politician. And all I could start is trying to understand things, to understand what people have said about those things and try to make logical deductions based upon what's been said, what empirical evidence there is, and try to weigh those, those issues. But of, of course, I'm not a politician. I do like politicians who are analytical. You know, I used to say, this of course itself might sound pretentious, that I wrote my statistics book for someone like Barack Obama. Here's someone who is obviously very, very bright and analytical, and yet I'm sure is not interested in mathematical details. So I hope that if he had to take probability and statistics, that this approach to things, saying here's a problem, and he'd think about the logic of it, is something that would have appealed to him. But I'm not saying that because I'm not saying that to promote my book for crying out loud. I'm saying that I do like politicians who are analytical. And if you listen to President Obama, whether you agree or disagree with individual stances that he took, he very much did try to analyze facts and consider all kinds of possibilities. You know that that I know that's not easy, right? Speaking with poise and, and actually thinking critically about problems seems like something that is uh, often missing these days. Um, but I, I remember um, finding a video of, of you. This must have been the early 2000s. Was this right after uh, 9-11 and 2001, where you were called to testify um, under oath, right, at Congress? Was yes. that Was that a nerve-wracking time for you? No, I loved it. I loved it, actually. I had worked with, you see, this is an interesting story. And again, part of my luck is that I've gotten a chance to work on really interesting problems. Before 9-11, there was talk about imposing positive passenger bag match in U.S. domestic flights, meaning if a person checked a bag on a flight and didn't show up, the bag would not travel. Unaccompanied bags had blown up a number of planes, including Pan Am 103, a 747 headed from London to New York, and also an Air India flight, actually from Toronto to London, which blew up off the coast of Ireland. And the U.S. airlines, before 
9-11, tended to believe that while there was risk in international flying, there was no domestic risk, that measures to increase security on domestic flights within the United States were all cost, no benefit. So they very strongly resisted positive passenger bag match. They had these exaggerated claims that they'd have to cut flights by 30%, etc. Even though we did an experiment, they did take part in an experiment to see how often people check bags and just don't show up. You know, it can happen because you go into a bar, let's say you get involved in the football game and you forget to go back to your flight in time. But the experiment showed that these things happen very rarely. And moreover, when they happened, it didn't take very long, actually, to take the bag off the plane. We're talking about every now and then a delay which averaged, let's say, seven minutes. And of course, in the context of all the delays you get in the aviation system, this was really a very secondary effect. But even so, they didn't want to do it. And before 9-11, it was not the policy. Well, after 9-11, I did think this was one of the things one should be doing to try to prevent further attacks, because now that they were strengthening the cockpit so you couldn't, uh, you know, hijack the plane and turn it into a weapon, smash it into a building, that the luggage compartment could be sort of the soft underbelly. And anyway, then I was asked to testify at Congress. I was, I headed a team that had done this experiment prior to 9-11, and the airlines did adopt positive passenger bag match after 9-11. They were pretty much required to. And guess what? The delays were almost non-existent because they now insisted they wanted you to show up 15 minutes before the flight. And so if you didn't show up 15 minutes before the flight, they could have the bag pull in five, 10 minutes. So it, would, it wouldn't even delay the departure, etc. So that was, yeah, that was the experience there. But was it nerve-wracking? No, not at all, actually. I, I really enjoyed it. You know, I, I, when I speak in a situation like that, I don't use notes, but that doesn't mean it's in the least spontaneous. You know, I practice, I practice things like that in advance and figure out which places my, which I should turn silent to into, or, or should my voice should lower to indicate emotion. No, I, I don't mean to say that it's all fake, but I'm saying, no, in answer to your question, no, I didn't, I didn't mind that at all. I've just, so many of the things I've done were the kinds of things I had dreamed of doing, I guess, early on. So, yeah, I have been, I have been a very lucky one, at least so far. You know, there was a story in, I think, about King Xerxes, who things are going wonderfully, and then at the end... Everything collapsed. So I remember the the reading said, count no man happy until the end of his days. Okay. And of course this applies also to women. But no, I've been very I've been very lucky so far. So, you know, beyond testifying for Congress and, and your illustrious career, you know, I, I wanna ask some personal questions. Besides your, your advisor in uh graduate school, who who do you find inspiring? Well, lots of people I find inspiring. My wife is inspiring in a lot of ways. She's a very practical person. She's very, she is calm, you know, much calmer than I am. But lots of, you know, lots of people around me have, are, are people who have inspired me. And every now and then, you know, there is someone, for example, in public life, names that are known. A name like Barack Obama, I'll tell you, is someone I consider inspiring. Not that I agree with everything he did. But in, in public life, someone like that is someone that I respect. Uh, Dr. Fauci is someone that I, I certainly respect because he doesn't always, not everything he says is correct, but he does try to be correct. And when he's wrong, he acknowledges it and says, we have to change what we're doing. Uh, you know, someone I admire somewhat. Did you ever watch Governor Cuomo during the pandemic? I, I did catch some of those. Yeah. Now, I thought Governor Cuomo, in his presentations, was superb, in that he presented highly technical evidence in very accessible ways, and he remembered exactly what message he was trying to get across. 
you know, and he would show the graphs and talk about what they meant, etc. I, I really was highly impressed. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes. At the beginning, he was a little slower to impose what he called a pause than he would have been ideally. And there's also a question of whether he made mistakes in terms of sending people back to nursing homes when they still might have uh, had COVID-19. But still, I thought, though, that the, as the presentations he gave and the style of mind he had, I, I did think he was an inspiring figure, etc. And I know many people thought that. And I watched him, you know, in the heyday, everyone was watching him, it seemed. Later on, fewer and fewer people were in the room. But I would watch him to the end. At night, I would sort of go back and watch the tape for the presentation that day. So that's an example of someone that I that we know about, whom I believe was is a terribly inspiring figure. How about life changing? Who comes to mind for that? Well, my wife is certainly life changing. Uh, my children are life changing. Uh, some of the people on the faculty at MIT who were supportive at times when I needed support were life changing. How did you meet your wife? She worked at MIT. She worked in the, she worked in admissions at MIT, actually at the Sloan School. In fact, I think at one point she was a part of admissions at LGO. Uh, it was LFM for a short time. She had something to do with the admissions there. And I remember I was in the math department originally, and I went into her office because in the math department, the tradition was that the professor would get a complimentary copy of the textbook for, uh, before the first day of class. So I went in and asked for my copy, and she said, we don't have one. This was, of course, at the Sloan School. Okay? And I, I meant it sort of as a joke, but I said, this is outrageous. I won't teach the class. And I, had, I used to bring a stick to class then as a pointer, you know, an actual stick from a, from a tree, a branch or something. So I started waving it and said, well, please, I hope that they will give me the book as quickly as possible, and you can tell them that I'm armed and dangerous. So I left and she went in and said, a nut was just here. And then we started, you know, sort of an adversarial relationship. And then we thought we would codify it because it seemed to fit as a marriage. That was a long time. That was how I met her, actually. Did she not get your sense of humor right away? Or, or have you just improved your delivery since then? Uh, she did get it. She did get the sense of humor, I think. She thought I was odd in a way that I guess she considered it endearing. Now that she knows me better, she understands that the, the full vector of things is more complicated. But yeah, but again, that itself was something very fortunate. But it is true that, be, that I did expect a copy of the textbook, and I didn't expect to have to buy it myself. I don't know why. It was sort of an odd tradition in the, in the math department. But you see, then again, there's an issue of luck. Because I, I was teaching sort of as an instructor in the math department, and I got a call. We were interested in the Sloan School in hiring someone who has an interest in public sector research. And at that time, I had done work on ground transportation systems and crime, the crime risks, some of that actually in my probability book. And they said, why don't you just come over? And I remember thinking, I don't know whether I want that. I mean, would I really want to teach in a business school? I mean, how do you teach probability there? Does every unknown have to be a dollar sign rather than X? And But then I went over to the Sloan School, and I met various faculty members. And this one had a background in chemical engineering. And this one had a background in operations research. This one had a background in physics. This one had a background in pure math. And at the end of the day, I had the wonderful feeling. I said, no one here knows anything about business. So, but it was fortunate that that opportunity came up. You see, I was in the math department there and was teaching calculus and things and was happy enough. But I didn't think I would get tenure in the math department because I'm not a mathematical genius. You know, and to get tenure in the math department, and I'm not saying, by the way, the Sloan School has lower standards. It has different standards, you know, in terms of impact rather than, let's say, theoretical elegance. So, you know, again, a lot of cases, you know, sort of like molecules bounce around, you know, with the, I forget what they call it, a Brownian motion. I've been lucky that I bounced a lot of ways 
that turned out to be very advantageous. And I have a feeling, given what, whom I, the kind of person I am, I wouldn't have liked it as much because the premium would have been placed on proving things upon this cerebral activity without much emphasis on how important it is to the world. And I did want to work on problems where and, and do things where there was a sense that it was important. And I, I don't think you really get that so much in a pure math department. You know, Henry, you know, Henry, Henry Kissinger, does that name, name mean something to you? Uh, yeah, Secretary of Defense. Is that what he was? He was Secretary of State, but he's a, a political scientist, actually. He was a, a professor at Harvard for a while, and then he went to Washington. And he's he's considered quite a deep thinker about issues of international politics and foreign policy. He's also very controversial. And I myself have not been thrilled by some of the things he advocated. But he once said something that I thought was very insightful. He said that professors argue bitterly about matters precisely because the stakes are so small. And I think what he meant was, if you have professors, and he was, I think he was specifically referring to Harvard. And I think he, what he was saying was, Harvard professors believe, based on their talents, they really should be running the world. And they're not, which may well be to the benefit of the world, I might add. But anyway, because of this frustration, it may be that a, a, the question of where you put the flower pot becomes a source of enormous acrimonious argument. So I think, in other words, a lot of academics are not completely happy with, with their lot. And I'm luckily not among them. I mean, many academics, I might add, are happy with their lot. You know, some of the mathematicians, I'm sure, are very serene about continuing to prove theorems and lemmas that lead to additional theorems. So they're really very happy with it. So I'm not saying that everyone in a math department is miserable. I'm saying that I myself might have been miserable. So maybe it's good that I didn't have that opportunity. Well, it's good to shoot for a, for a higher purpose, isn't it? I, I really feel like you do that. Would you care to comment? Did you see the play Avenue Q? I haven't seen Avenue Q. I've heard some of the songs. Yeah. Well, I remember there is the question of finding your purpose. And I I don't know I, what purpose. I mean, people make lots of contributions to the world, and often they're not recognized. Obviously, that's one of the things coming up in the pandemic. You know, the people who are on the front lines, you know, facing this risk every day and keeping things comfortable for those of us who are working at home. So they believe me, they have a purpose. And I think there's a greater acknowledgement of that now. You know, I was just hearing on the radio earlier today that one of the states has arranged that, I'm trying to remember which state it was. Okay, it, it, it escapes me at the moment. I think, no, it's Michigan. It's the state of Michigan. That anyone who's been a frontline worker during the pandemic will automatically get free tuition for the, the, the community college, a community college education as a way of showing thanks. Okay, and they were interviewing people who were saying this opened up opportunities to them. So in other words, the question of what exactly is purpose, you know, lots of people have purpose. What about the people on Saturday Night Live? They have a purpose. I mean, to the extent that they give people something to think about and something to laugh about, millions of people, that's a purpose. Absolutely. I, th I think that's very important, improving people's lives. Yeah. And some of the issues, for example, that LGOs are probably working on now are about some of the issues about the delivery of a vaccine when a vaccine becomes available. You know, some of the issues about operations management and delivery systems just in time and whatnot. Believe me, those people have a purpose. Much as you people, when you get out and work on work with these organizations, will very much have a purpose and do important things. Well, bringing the, bringing the subject back to you, you know, what do you think your legacy is going to be whenever you, you depart MIT? I don't think about that so much. I think 
a legacy is that, you know, I have had over the course of the years, thousands of students. Did you ever see Goodbye, Mr. Chips? It's a story, actually, the, the first version was about a, a, someone in a boys' school in World War I, you know, and he, you know, took care of things, a British, a British boarding school for boys. And when he died, someone said, it's unfortunate he didn't have any sons. And someone responded, he had thousands. Now, I'm not really suggesting that I, all the people who have been in my classes are children, but to the extent that I've taught them something or just ways of thinking about things that they wind up using, you know, that itself is a legacy. You know, and I guess, you know, to the extent that I have, let's say, a research profile, you know, of a certain type of research that's a bit different. I try to write as simply as possible. This is not universal in the academic world. And try to focus on relatively simple arguments and logical arguments to the extent that some people read that and feel more emboldened to, to proceed that way. That would be a legacy. You know, I, I think we're we're coming up on time here, um, but but I want to give you you know open floor to have the last word. If there's any advice or anything in particular you'd like to share to to me or to any of our listeners here. Oh, I I, I would love that. The the last word is what I said actually. I think I said very briefly at the end of our last class to the LGOs. I said thank you for the pleasure of your company. And I meant that very much. I get such pleasure with the, L, with the LGO program, with the people I keep in touch with, et cetera, from the program. So I'm very excited to be part of it. And I hope MIT turns out to be you know, very much a great adventure for you. I'm not suggesting every moment is going to be delightful, but I hope that on balance, you think it was a very good use of your time and you know of your efforts and and all the things you're doing to be here. And I hope, of course, that the abnormalities associated with this monstrous pandemic will turn out to be transient effects. Well, I'd like to reciprocate the exact same feeling. You know, thank you for the pleasure of, of being with us tonight and, and for all summer and in the future when we get the chance to interact with you more. Well, I hope so. And I'm, I'm grateful, of course, and very flattered that you thought of me in this connection. So you see, my, my luck runneth over. <laughs>